Metal, episode 15. This week, um, we're covering a genre that I argued for years couldn't possibly exist. We're doing a show on progressive thrash, which, like, initially, I found Voivod and Vector, and <laughs> those were the only two examples, and arguably Vector are just copying Voivod, so I don't know if that even still counts as progressive. But I think there's a, we've gathered together four albums we think just about prove this genre can exist. Obviously, to start it, the band we're going to cover is Voivod, just because they are probably the most obvious example early, very early on in the thrash scene, like sort of mid-80s, doing something that was a bit weird, a bit different. Before we get into them, we should probably discuss what we mean by thrash exactly. Um, I'm taking Thrash to basically be any kind of band that are basing their songs around playing fast music where it's not massively down-tuned and mainly based around an open string chug. Like, yeah, yeah. I and think that's the core element. And an awful lot of palm muting involved in the riffs as well mm-hmm. is one of the sort of staples you can get out of it. And I think before we really get into it, I should also point out, we would and should include Vector on this. But seeing as we covered um, Terminal Redo relatively recently, and that's great, like that album is awesome, um, we're not putting them in this episode and we've filled it in with some slightly different bands. But yeah, it's sort of just what thrash bands have been really interesting and have sort of played around with the what can sometimes be quite restrictive rules of a genre and show that you can actually do really interesting stuff with it. Yeah, so uh, as I said, first one we're going to cover is Voivod and we're going to go for their third album, Killing Technology, which is probably came out in 1987, so kind of like the height of thrash metal starting to get really interesting, getting picked up by big labels. Um, This was released on Noise Records and was a really interesting jump for Voivod because they went from their first two albums being slightly weird, chaotic messes, like really, really fast, really aggressive. This album sort of pulls back a bit on the aggression and we get some more distinct melodies. But being Voivod, when we get more distinct melodies... The melodies uh, are just weird. Like, and it's it's sort of that sort of start of their road towards becoming really quite melodic, as they became after this album with albums like Cators and um, some of the other stuff they've done mm. recently. Um, and it's in that sort of weird midground with the sort of extreme aggression and weirdness that Voivod bring to everything. And then they've sort of brought that weirdness to melodies as well, and like somehow managed to put melody over these weird riff structures that they do. Yeah, yeah, um, they're part of like. They kind of founded that loose weave Canadian scene where we've got all sorts of strange stuff coming out of it, like Oblivion, Gorguts, um, Infernal Majesty, all these bands that sort of started off between late 80s, early 90s, that were just subtly different and almost wrong, but I don't know, it takes mm. a while, they're all bands that take a while to get your head around, Gorguts especially are a, yeah, yeah. another brilliant example of just writing strong strangely. But Voivod would definitely like that, I remember when I sort of first came across um, Ravenous Medicine from this album, uh, when I was quite young and getting into Metallica and Megadeth and things like that, it, it, I just did not get it, I did not understand what Voivod were doing, and it took me like a couple more years to the point where I was getting into my death metal and stuff to really think, oh no actually Voivod are incredible and they're doing stuff which no other thrash band is doing. And I think the most interesting thing about almost all of their albums, and this one's no exception, is that it has serious atmosphere to it. Mm. Like, they often feel like this weird sort of techno dystopia, despite being, like, you know, ostensibly just a weird thrash album. 
And I think that's something that's really interesting because most thrash sort of has the same kind of atmosphere to it. You have a little bit of that sort of um, tough guy thing. It's uh, often about violence or about horrible things that have happened in history. And Voivod took this completely different direction and wrote these like weird horror songs about techno dystopias. Yeah, and it's horror not in the Slayer way. It's kind of... Mm. I don't know, it's, it's unsettling in a very different way. It's hard. I find it hard to put my finger on. I think it's, it's more how Slayer have kind of very um, sort of negative-sounding melodies, whereas Voivod just have subtly wrong-sounding melodies. And I think a lot of that comes out of... It's Piggy, the guitarist, mm. who just doesn't use normal chords. He seems to write entirely around using just like, what, what is now regularly termed in metal Piggy chords. They're, and you like if you've not heard Voivod before... Pay a lot of attention to an album like King Technology, and you can see its influence all over the place. Like um, some of the heavier bits, bits of Opeth, massively rip off this style. There's, there's moments in, say, We for um, Deliverance from the Deliverance album that have like sections of piggy chords, but mm, mm. with Opeth drumming rather than a ways drumming. And yeah, a lot of other bands who are like just doing something weird have taken these chords. And again, they're hard to explain. It's just. Piggy seemed to have a very unique style. He was a very, like, sort of educated player. He knew a lot about classical music and jazz outside of metal for such a young guy at this point. And seemed to be able to incorporate a lot of weirdness, but still holding down a melody. Yeah, and, like, managing to get melody and, like, in a lot of songs, like Ravenous Medicine's a good example, it's got great grooves to section of it, despite having these weird sort of discordant guitar chords. And they and they never go too far. It never descends into that just doesn't work. It stays just within the bounds of weird, but just about, like, holds you in. Which, as you say, like, creates this sort of weird, unsettling atmosphere to the whole thing. Which is very different from how Thrash would normally deal with sort of, like, horror-type things. This reminds me more of something like 1984 or a science fiction book than it does, like, you know, Ed Gein or something like that from Slayer songs. And I think a big part of it, that was what they were going for. So with Voivod, like, it is all, again, we, we've talked a few times about just, like, essential metal purchases. The first five Voivod albums are all kind of in that realm. Mm. There's this amazing trajectory from supremely kind of chaotic and terrifying kind of scratchy noise into by the time we get to Nothing Face, the fifth album, become quite melodic and almost reminiscent of like uh, Angel Dust by Faith No More, mm. but was still with a bit of a fresh edge to it. And and these these albums are, are all part of a sci-fi concept about the character Voivod, who I think is meant to be some apocalyptic warlord <laughs> who's invincible and a vampire. I've never quite got my head around. The lyrics are bizarre and yeah. really hard to follow. And Drummer Away does all the artwork for the albums, and he has a very unique and interesting art style, which plays into the whole kind of creepy atmosphere. Killing Technology, particularly, is an amazing cover. Yeah, yeah, it really matches it as well. If you look um, at Raw, the album before this, which is sort of, well, rawer and sort of nastier, more aggressive, more chaotic. Um, and it's crazy to listen to that alongside, you know, the other thrash that was going on. Because there's mm. some great examples, you know, Megadeth and Metallica are going strong at this point. There's Anthrax, there's Exodus, there's loads of cool stuff there. But Voivod sound, like, infinitely more mad and more aggressive than they do. And they just push it to this other level, which these other bands cannot reach. And then as Voivod go on, they manage to take this aggression into this album and somehow pair that with melody in a way that doesn't feel sort of, you know, schizophrenic. And they'll, and they'll keep doing that. And it's, it's amazing from Snake on vocals how he somehow manages to impose this clean singing over what's going on underneath. And I don't know how he does it, but he does it with the utmost conviction and it sounds incredibly genuine. 
and really plays into the sort of unsettling atmosphere. And maybe it's maybe it's because he's got a French Canadian accent, and I can't think of another famous French Canadian mm-hmm. clean singer. But um, <laughs> like, there's something about his vocal style that is completely unique. People don't sound like Snake, and he has such a difficult job because the music. On top of Piggy's weird and wonderful chords, Blackie the bass player does his own thing completely as well. Mm. Like, he doesn't just produce a normal pattern for Piggy to kind of play around with. He <laughs> plays off the strangest, and he just have a way desperately trying to hold it all mm. together. Mm. And uh, the vocals as well, like, particularly on this album, they range quite a lot from these, like, really slightly odd, harsh vocals, which don't quite... They're in that sort of era of thrash where there was a whole bunch of different styles of vocals mm. going on, and here's are different again. Um, and then you get these sort of... Bits which are almost conversational, um, <laughs> and then bits that are sort of cleanly sung, and you have this great variation on this album, which I think probably makes it one of my favourite of the first five vocals. I mean, they're all worth getting, but this one I think marks this really interesting point where they have both of the elements that they did really well, sort of yeah. working in concert together. Because it's, it's the first album where he probably introduces the clean scene, but the mm. previous two he's still sort of like, kind of screaming over it. It's mm. not quite into a, the realm of melody. And he'll get more and more melodic as we go on. Like, when we get to their sixth album, Angel Rap, then they take a completely different yeah, turn. Yeah. But we won't cover that because that's going to go into all sorts of weirdness. <laughs> well, as you mentioned as well, with um, the sort of bass tone of this album and the bass in general is an amazing driving force on it, which, again, a lot of thrash bands, the bass will sometimes just be relegated to just holding down the music. In this, it drives things and has weird patterns and takes you in unexpected directions, which is really, really cool to hear. And it's really prominent in the mix as well. You can really hear it and pay attention to it. And the thing that's worth mentioning with this, and Rob sort of touched on it, is there are moments of complete normality, but they're so, like, they'll, they'll hold together a lot of strangeness. We were occasionally throwing in a real groove driven, mm. just catchy thrash rip. Like, actually, the opening, so after a minute of weird noise, killing technology, comes in with this just amazingly um, catchy drum group. Yeah, yeah. And then then Snake comes in and all hell descends. Yeah. And it, but, and, it, and it's, it's proved to be a real popular one of their songs. Like, we saw them live recently, and this is still their opening track. Mm. This is how they start sets. Yeah, and on songs like um, Ravenous Medicine as well, and Order of the Blackguards, there is this... They, this will just sometimes settle into this groove which wouldn't feel too out of place in other thrash bands bar sort of Voivod's weird sound and stuff like that it, it feels like okay this is sort of like a groovy thrash section and then they'll throw it out the window with this weird song structure and weird chords and stuff like that but the songwriting strength of it is that it all fits and it all works and it all works towards a sort of shared artistic image and it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it doesn't feel like random elements thrown together it feels like they've been very carefully put together and it really feels cohesive mm-hmm Something else we should probably touch on, another kind of slight barrier to entry I think a lot of people would have with this album is the production, we're not talking sort of, you know, that period of Metallica kind of sound. This is far more first and second Sodom and Creator album mm. kind of sound. It, it's very rough, like, it's a rough, intense sound, but actually maybe even more akin to, say, something like Celtic Frost, where the sound's really yeah. rough and abrasive, but you can hear all the instruments perfectly. Yeah, as I was going to say, actually, like, it, it all sounds like slightly broken and slightly on edge. But particularly as well with the bass as well, which is rare, you mm. can really hear what each instrument is doing, um, despite the fact they're all meshing into this sort of weird atmospheric hole as well. So I think the production works really well on this album. Yeah, uh, which yeah. Which is, yeah, like, really, something really good for a band, like, early in their career. And even with the albums before this, like, Raw also works. Raw, it's only War and Pain, the first one, where I think the production does kind of let it, because you just can't pick out of the chaos what's going yeah. on enough. Yeah. And with with stuff that's interesting... Um, you want to you want to hear the riffs properly, mm, mm. 
The one thing I would say with Voivod as well, they often get labelled technical thrash, which I don't think is quite fair, because they're not actually all that technical. Technical seems to be, and same with technical death metal, is often just described to a band who do the thing that everyone else is doing, but like in a weird, different way. And Voivod certainly, in terms of song structures and stuff like that, are really different if you compare them to a lot of other thrash metal bands. And I guess it's, you know, just often ascribed to something that you don't really get because you don't know what it's doing. Yeah. Um, and it's still quite hard to pick out what Voivod are doing that makes them so interesting and so different. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's the sort of piggy chords and there's the slightly odd song structures and there's the different vocals and there's the bass. But it's quite hard to pin down exactly what it is, which gives them such a different feel to all the other thrash bands. What's quite interesting with them as well, like, uh, very sadly, um, in 2005, Piggy died of cancer, like... He's, he also, like, I think it was an inoperable... Like, no, he could have had the cancer operated on about 15 years earlier, mm. but was told it would affect his playing, so decided to power yeah, through. Yeah. And But the band, despite Piggy passing away, and Piggy being the main writer, have managed to continue on quite a good trend of keeping up a sound that sounds like yeah, Voivod. Yeah. Like, they've very much continued in the vein of, after doing, like, a very weird middle section of, like, four or five albums go all over the place. Mm. They've gone back more to very much in the killing technology vein. Uh, Dan Mograine steps in as a guitarist and like he's got a hard job to fill, but he really steps up to it. Like, yeah, and I think like Piggy is one of these guitarists in metal, which is just legendary for his ability mm. to do something that everyone else did and then like just take it up another gear. So that's some really big shoes to fill. And like, well, we saw him recently, like he does it really, really well. Like they sound Excellent. I was really blown away by how good they were. And I believe Dan Mograin was um, on From Wisdom to Hate, like All Guts, so he's had a oh, foot right. in both the uh, <laughs> Canadian staples camps. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, like, it is tragic about Piggy, and he doesn't get the same kind of reputation as a lot of other like famous metal musicians who have passed mm. away, but his influence can be felt even if you don't know it. Like, You might not have heard much of Voivod, but you know songs that were directly influenced yeah. by his playing style. And, like, it it might be hard to get your head around Voivod straight away, but what, given time, there is a mm-hmm. lot to unpack here. Yeah, give it a chance, because, like, you can listen to this album over and over and over and over again, and you'll pick out new things about it each time, because you can hear all of the things that are going on quite clearly, and there's loads to unpick there whilst it is still an incredibly enjoyable album just to listen to. Yeah, so that being said, we're going to go for probably one of the weirder tracks on the album. This is track four, Forgotten in Space, which essentially has no discernible structure. It just (laughs) leaps from riff to riff brilliantly, but Mm. yeah, you have to make up your own mind on this one. It's possibly a hard starting point, but (laughs) definitely makes the argument for progressive thrash being a thing. Yeah, definitely.
So the second band that we're covering today is Coroner. And the album that we're doing is one that often isn't actually that liked by fans of Coroner. It's 1993's Grin, released on Noise Records. And now if, if Voivod sort of puts you in the mind of like this weird techno dystopia, I find that Coroner is another really sort of uh, atmospheric album, but it puts me in the mind of a sort of terrifying low-budget horror film. I, I get um, more David Lynch. I can, I can see elements of that. Like very Mulholland Drive. I don't know why. That that's probably just pretentious nonsense. <laughs> like Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting album because it's very minimalistic. Um, it really feels like there are only three people doing it, uh, which there are, and there are guitar overdubs in this, but it feels very sort of cut back from the intensity of what some other thrash is doing. Like Killing Technology feels like full of things that are all going on. Um, Grin cuts back quite a lot and will sit down to just bass, guitar and drums with some sort of relatively, like, 
not huge vocals over the top, mm. um, relatively minimalistic. And it starts off with this sort of like dittery do and tribal percussion type thing. And, it, you know, as you get in, it starts to feel like some sort of weird ritual. And mm. this is sort of, I think, empowered throughout it by these weird, like creepy guitar leads um, which again, like Voivod, manages to retain groove for an awful lot of the song. So it does this weird balance of creepy and groovy at the same time, which gives this really unique atmosphere to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, we're probably going to overstate this, and but this album is strangely minimalistic for a metal album. There, mm. Nothing lasts... Like, n- there's no extra notes anywhere. Everything is stripped back to be as minimalistic as possible. The vocals all have this really weird feel. Like... Um, Ron Royce's vocals are kind of like a, a sort of low kind of scream. They're mm. like, I, I, it's somewhere between speaking and growling. It's it, it's somewhere in that sort of Tom Warrior camp of vocals where we don't really know what's going on. Interestingly, their first demo, Tom Warrior did vocals yeah, for them. Yeah. And then Ron <laughs> seems to have just gone on with that style mm. ever since. And and like all the lyrics have this very like mantra type feel to them. Mm. Like, mm. It'll just be, each song will be one or two repeating phrases with a slightly different phrase for the chorus. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's all very, very simple. The only real break from the kind of simple groove is occasionally um, Tommy Barron will come in with a ludicrous guitar solo. Yeah, yeah. And like the sort of minimalism extends down to the individual instruments as well. Like I listened to this album again and again, I started to really pay attention to the drums on it, and there are very few drum fills on this album. Like, mm. like they every, every now and then, but most of the time, it just sticks to a groove, and it really emphasizes this like slightly empty, slightly odd atmosphere, and allows the sort of guitar leads to really like pull you in, and, and, and the odd riffs as well. Um, sort of not the same as Voivod, but the same in the sense that they do these just weird thrash riffs, which sort of unnerve you as opposed to sort of get you going like a lot of thrash does. Yeah, yeah. This this album throughout has a very unsettling feeling, and the kind of all the riffs, although simplistic, have an amazing groove. So much mm. of this album will get so locked in your head yeah. as you go through it, like not just the vocal patterns, but the the riffs and the the drum and bass groove. Often as well, like, the album is based around a drum and bass groove with the guitar mm. adding, like, weird atmosphere yeah, a lot of the yeah. time. And then it'll come back in with a bit more of a chuggy riff. And it does a really great job of sort of tension with that. Like, there's so much of this album feels tense. And yet, like, it, it sort of feels sort of normal in that there's this clear groove going on, which is getting stuck in your head. And yet you feel tense as you're listening to it, which it will release at various points of, like, these guitar solos and stuff like that and other, like... Uh, more powerful lead parts, but the whole thing comes off with this weird tension, which is something you don't often feel in a thrash metal album. And like, not to be unsaid, the guitar solos are brilliant on this. Mm. They aren't mm. self-indulgent. They are super melodic, really well written, really, really well played. The tone is brilliant, and uh, like, they perfectly break these moments of tension yeah. just to yeah. give you a release, and then you're back into the weirdness. Normally, with like an odd, like, normally there'll be the point that brings a song to an odd close, like. And and when the songs close, they'll often do a lot of interesting studio effects. There's a couple of tracks which have like reverse cymbal sounds, mm, and mm. Uh, like the guitar would descend into like a phaser type noise. And as you were saying, sort of the ritual idea of it, talking about the vocals as well, it it feels like a chant a lot of the time, mm. particularly because the delivery doesn't vary that much, and because the phrases often repeat. It really feels like this whole thing is some strange ritual, um, like from beginning to end, and particularly at the end when we get the song "Host," which begins with these sort of weird keyboards um, the sound of buzzing flies and then comes into this like 
odd, odd song. Uh, which, like, uh, at this point, like, it's barely thrash anymore, but somehow it manages to keep that sort of groove and that style going through this weirdness. And Host, like, decides to leave the album in a completely different way to any of the other songs. Um, when normally the other songs build up to a big solo and have a slightly odd fade out, this sort of builds up to something and then just cuts away into, like, a very, um, strange, minimal melody to play, mm. play the last three minutes of the album out. Like, you, because it's like an eight minute long song, you think it's yeah. going to build to a big payoff, but instead it builds to just a weird fade out just to, <laughs> just to leave you at the wrong yeah. moment. It's, it's, it's so much of his album seems to be purposely there to try and unsettle people. Yeah, and, and like a huge sort of um, departure from what Coroner did beforehand, where they have like crazy fast, like amazingly sort of technical thrash stuff, which mm. is also really impressive. But this is the album that leaves me with this lasting impression because it does so much with so little and like manages to evoke so much atmosphere with like such a minimalist setup and sound. So uh, it might be worth getting into a bit of coroner history here. They formed in 1985, so not too far, but a little behind the thrash movement. Mm-hmm. And being from Switzerland, obviously well outside of any logical scene with it. Yeah. Their first demo is utterly brilliant. It's got uh, Tom G. Warrior on vocals really just interesting thrash, like taking a bit of a weird direction. Follow-up R.I.P., it's slightly disappointing, but then Punishment to Decadence, it comes out in 1988, sort of just after Mm. a kind of killing technology time. Ultra-technical, really interestingly written thrash goes all over the place. And then from this ultra-technical point, they seem to pull away more and more with every subsequent album, Mm. getting more stripped back, more simplistic, but better and better production, more and more groove to every song... And, and and eventually, like, honestly, if you follow the arms through, Grin is a logical point. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of fans would be upset with it because mm. it's it is not an aggressive album. It's not <laughs> it, it's not a mosh pit album. Like no, no, whereas Punishment for Decadence or even No More Color really are albums you could yeah you could treat like an onslaught mm. show still. And then like even going back to the demo as well, the the production on that album is actually really solid for mm. a first demo. Like the guitar sound is is raw, but it's really good. And like I'm definitely going to try to pick up a copy of that if I can because it, it's really interesting sound. And having Tom Warrior there as well is just like that's great because I it's love cool. Celtic. Yeah, Christ, it's so. a cool <laughs> bit of history. Like yeah. it's yeah, much like Michael Ackerfeld on uh, Brave Murder Day. Mm. Like it's mm. just <laughs> interesting crossover. And throughout this, uh, Coroner's lineup has stayed as this solid free piece. And these songs, like you see videos, and they work live. These guys, mm. I am um, like so. Not long after Grin, they broke up and looked like they were pretty much done. But um, came back in 2011. I think Hellfest was their first show, which I managed to catch. Oh, and, awesome! Yeah, and and they are they were like I think a headliner of a day, and they really stood up to that. Like mm. they come off as a very good metal act, like despite being three guys, which not many thrash bands could manage. And this is quite a while ago, but do you remember if they played anything from Grin at that I set? think they played, I remember Serpent Moves, which oh, okay, is yeah, the yeah. obvious, like, although I say it's the obvious one, almost any track off of Grin mm. is brilliant. Like, it's a 10-track long album, it's got an intro and an interlude that are both a bit pointless, but they kind of feel like fluff, yeah, but they're only like yeah. a minute long each. Whereas the rest of the songs are near enough perfect, so like I wouldn't, mm. I wouldn't mm. cut anything from this. They all tend to come in like much beyond the six minute mark, so because it's all quite slow, like actually just fitting in a few repetitions. Yeah, just fitting, takes in, a just long fitting time. in enough riffs to make a normal song, like just extends the song beyond you know your sort of four minutes or something like that. As well, like with the whole sort of feel of the album, 
It's then got this album cover, which is great and creepy as well. It's got this like weird grinning face, which is slightly off-center, um, just sort of staring at you. Uh, and I really like the album cover. I feel it really emphasizes what you're going to get in the album itself. Mm. I think the album cover is designed by... I could be wrong, but I think it might be Marcus Markey, the drummer. Oh, okay. That's and cool. and worth mentioning, these guys have never had a lineup change, as far as I know. Mm, mm. Well, until the reunion, the the drummer has since quit, which is a yeah, shame. Yeah, because I think he, but he's a huge part of the sound, and probably means we're never going to get the follow up album, mm, which mm. I don't know is a bad thing. I don't always. It's weird after breaking up for ten years plus to yeah, yeah. try something new. So maybe like Grin is a brilliant endpoint. Mm. It's an absolute logical conclusion to their sound. Yeah, there's a great sort of progression through all the albums, which like really comes to a fore with Grin. Mm. And even even if it sort of you know did disappoint some of the fans, I still think it's a really interesting piece of history to go back to and look at how Coroner evolved over time. And if you look at it in time as well, 1993, Fresh was dying then. If mm. they'd done another Fresh album. It would never be remembered. There were so many... Like, this was at the point where both Thrash and even Death Metal was starting to spin out a little by this stage. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah this is not too long before the rise of new Metal. Mm. And yes, yeah, so I think this was just a really good way to seal the end of their career with just something different. And no one's ever done this album since. I've not heard something equivalent. Maybe mm. I'm not looking in the right places, though. No, I mean, I, if something else like this exists, I'd definitely be really interested in hearing that because I think sort of taking the thrash sentiment and the thrash style of writing songs and some of the writing riffs and then just changing it up a little bit, like sort of like Voivod did, but in a different direction, is really, really cool. And like it'd be great to see if more bands took this sort of approach to writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the song we're going to um, leave you with is probably like the the obvious automatic classic from this album. This is the fifth track, Serpent Moves. And the guitar from this is going to be stuck in your head for ages. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
And the next album that we are covering is Annihilator's Never Neverland from 1990, released on Roadrunner. Um, Phil's been doing an awful lot of research for this one. I have. <laughs> he's gone through all of the Annihilator albums. So we'll stop, we'll get to that at the end. <laughs> but um, so this one is the one we wavered on slightly. I'm not sure if it's truly progressive thrash, but it's certainly different to a lot of other thrash albums. Sometimes people refer to Annihilator as a speed metal band, but that's one of those subgenres like technical metal. It's sort of got abandoned over the years. Yeah, I don't... And it's you know it's like if you go back long enough with anything like death metal or black metal, there are a bunch of bands which were called it. Which nowadays, if you refer to them as that, just wouldn't fit into the, that genre, you know. And as metal evolved, things like speed metal sort of came and went, and mm. aren't really used anymore. But Annihilator definitely show because of Jeff Waters' ridiculous guitar playing, show this sort of guitar virtuoso sort of side of thrash, and makes this album. I mean, it's called technical thrash in some areas as well. Um, and that almost fits here, more so yeah. than it does with Voivod at any rate. Yeah, it sort of shows this different side to how you can sort of do thrash metal, which is why we thought it was an interesting album to include with these others. So the, the kind of point in history of this, I, and I, I didn't realise this until I started researching the episode. So most of you, if you know Annihilator, you'll be familiar with the first album, Alison Hell, and maybe Never Neverland, the, the mm. one we're covering now. Um these actually came out... Annihilator didn't really get going until Thrash was almost over. Mm. Like they formed in 1984, but didn't get anything released till 1989, which were well into death metal by that point. Never Neverland came out a year after 1990 on Roadrunner Records, which is probably why we know of it so yeah, well. Yeah. So it did get some massive distribution. And at this point, Jeff Waters... Jeff Waters is the main man behind mm. Annihilator. Essentially, he said since... Annihilator, he just worked out, like, after a few years of false starts, he just needed session guys. Mm. Every album is Jeff Waters' baby and a load of, like, and he'll get a load of session guys in because he needs a drummer, he needs a vocalist. And, like, the whole thing starts off with him recording demos of every single part with a drum machine and him doing mm. vocals. And then he recruits a whole band. Between uh, Alison Hell and this album, I think he pretty much kicks out the entire previous band and yeah, yeah. gets a new one together. And then the most notable change on that is the shift from Randy Rampage on the first yes. album um, to Corbin Third. So you have the first album has this, uh, I think I'm pronouncing the second guy's name right, uh, but you have this sort of real sort of punk energy on the mm. first album, uh, which feeds into Alison Hell, which is a bit of a darker album than Never Definitely. Neverland. And then on this album, Corbin Fur like reminds me more of like a new wave of British heavy metal style singer, and he varies quite a lot from this sort of like mid range to these like really high parts as well. And he gives the album a bit of a different feel, which I think is also evident in the production of the album. The guitar on this um, doesn't quite sound as muddy, doesn't quite sound as heavy. It's a bit more trebly. You can tell a little bit more of this um, than you can in Alice in Hell, and it's slightly less heavy. But it's slightly less sinister, and that's sort of the point of this album. Alice in Hell has more of these sinister songs, like Alice in Hell itself, and more of these sinister guitar parts, which isn't to say they don't exist on Never Neverland. They do in songs like Fun Palace and some of the others as well. But it marks a little bit of a change, and I think in this you can hear a bit more of the sort of crazy Jeff Waters guitar leads to the front mm. of the album than you can in Alice in Hell. More than anything, it's just because it's an infinitely cleaner album. The production's mm. so much better, like... The bass, drums, all the guitars are so clear and clean in this album. It's an, mm. it's an amazingly produced album if you like your metal to sound ultra clean. Yeah, it, yeah. For the purposes of this album, I think it works. I think it's what it deserves. And and it doesn't have that... Because it's, it's still 
1990. It doesn't have that sound you get with a lot of modern super clean albums where it sounds like it's not a band playing. It sounds like <laughs> the perfect capture of a band playing. Like, yeah, yeah. You get every single part. It doesn't sound like studio tooling. And odds are with these guys it isn't. Like Jeff Waters is such an accomplished player. Mm. Even at this age, the guy was a genius guitarist. Yeah. Utterly incredible. And and he'll do he'll do interesting things as well. So on Fun Palace, one of the better known songs from this, you'll have these sort of like evil high pitched guitar wails on it. Like and he'll every now and then he'll use these sort of techniques that he's got to add something to a bit of the atmosphere of the album as well. You definitely see that on Alice in Hell too, with the sort of more sinister stuff, but you do get that here as well, as he becomes, you know, sort of better and better at guitar as it goes on. And there's so many examples of his absolutely mad sort of shredding abilities on this album. So, and and it's not in that disappointing way where it's just like the band sound like sounded fresh and then here comes a solo. Mm. Like a lot mm. of these songs, like Taking Periled Eyes um, is a really good example of this. The riffs will be so fast and so technical. Yeah. Road to Ruin is a really fast pick riff where it's really quick picked um, kind of you know, really fast downward chugging. And then he'll throw in super quick harmonics to mm, add, a, mm. add a weird effect. Like, I know we're going on a lot about Jeff here, but that it is Jeff's thing. But that being said, the bass keeps coming in on this album with really interesting stuff. He... Because Jeff writes the bass as well, and he writes albums for bass, mm, it seems. Mm. like. And the, the bass under this is, is much bouncier than the predecessor. It's mm. much more sort of up there. And as you say, you can really hear what it's doing. So it gives you this interesting dynamic of not only being able to pay attention to the guitar, but then also turn around and say, oh, well, what's the bass doing? And it's actually really helping the songs because Jeff Waters can really write. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The other huge departure we get from traditional thrash with this is Jeff is clearly experimenting with not um, talking about usual thrash topics we <laughs> and the result is very very hit or miss lyrically um, we, like this album he's trying to go for a thing of doing a bit more psychological stuff I'd mm, say mm. but this album just jumps from themes like mad like Fun Palace is psychological horror yeah, track 2 yeah. Road to Ruin is a song about drink driving uh, track four, Stonewall, is the obligatory thrash uh, pro-environmental song. Yeah, See yeah. Exodus is Chemical, uh, <laughs> Greenhouse Effect by Testament, or Countdown to Extinction yeah, by Megadeth. Megadeth yeah. And yeah, I think in Paralyzed is more the same. Never Neverland is a strange kind of Alice in Wonderland inspired mm, like mm. horror story. Croft Dinner is a song Croft about dinner. dinner. of course, <laughs> um, with the classic line, Macaroni Maniac, which I've scribbled down on my notes here and then circled several times. Um, I mean, actually, at this point, something we forgot to mention about Voivod from Dimension, um, Hatros is their Batman song. So, <laughs> Annihilator aren't the only ones who are doing this, like, sort of weird novelty songs. Yeah, the, the, the Voivod Batman song is not, like them doing a tribute to Batman it's just them singing Batman <laughs> just Actually, that, that word in, in the um, uh, Gillux bit of ki uh, Killing Technology that I've got it's the song they end the live DVD on <laughs> with that oh God. the final encore is just them playing the Batman theme but yeah uh, back to Annihilator like the Rob mentioned it before but the shift in vocals is really quite different here as well like um, Coburn does this far more clean approach but it's still mm. it's still very high in falsetto so it still has quite an abrasive feel he's not he's not going for obvious kind of like new wave of British heavy metal type melodies this still feels very much like in the flash vein of really pushing vocal limits like kind of uh, agent steel kind of style more yeah, so than yeah. um yeah more so than a kind of cleaner vocalist and, and the other point to point out is like this um see the song structures here 
a lot of them are relatively normal for Thrash, but there are points where it will sort of like change on a dime and surprise you. Uh, Imperiled Eyes is a nice example because it begins with this like crazy guitar work, then switches to classical guitar like for a couple of bars, and then immediately switches back into this incredibly like fast downpicked riff, which is really interesting and it all fits really nicely, particularly on that song. So this, I think, this comes from like uh, Jeff started out as a, I think, a classical jazz guitarist, and mm. he's, he had some classical training as well. Like he picked up guitar incredibly early, sort of wrote, enrolled in like. Um, sort of loading music training schemes and then dropped out to Push Annihilator. Yeah. And he so he has this amazing grasp of clean tone, like uh, and like finger picks and all sorts of interesting techniques you don't so often get in metal. Like if you know um the uh, intro to the Alison Hell album, like that two yeah, minute yeah. instrumental track where he plays around with acoustic guitar with a really gentle melodic solo over it. With this album, rather than doing that just as a separate instrumental piece, he's taken lots of little bits of that and placed it all through the album. Like, there's loads of bits where songs will break mm. down into a, a really nice little melodic section played on like a clean, nicely picked guitar, and then back into thrash. Yeah, yeah, and and it works really well. Like, particularly on this album, like the songwriting is for the most part done in such a way that it not only feels natural but it actually adds to the song and just like you know we talked about with Voivod it doesn't feel like just slamming influences together it feels like the influences are really organically used to make the sort of songwriting better mm. yeah this this does seem like an album that's taken a lot of interesting stuff from Frash combined it with some other stuff and use yeah and just use that as a place to jump off and make something a bit new and a bit interesting uh it should be noted as well like Ray Hartman, the drummer, really adds to this. He gets to have his own kind of moment in this. He's got, lo- like, much different to Coroner, loads of drum fills. Yeah, loads yeah. of really memorable drum fills. Like, uh, in Road to Ruin, he has a bit where he just, you know, kind of a mini three-second-long drum solo mm, before mm. So- uh, the uh, guitar solo comes yeah, in. Yeah, and, and it really adds to the energy of this album as well. Like, uh, all of these albums we're covering have, like, a different sort of feel to them. And Coroner's is much more stripped back, but Annihilator's it has this sort of thrash energy to it. Um, which I think those drum fills, as well with the sort of um, louder bass sound as well, really helps because it feels bigger and it feels sort of like more bombastic than something like Coroner's does. Mm. But then they both aim for their own sort of atmosphere that they're going for. And I, like, I think with this, like, it, it should be stated, Jeff Waters is kind of almost unfairly maligned. He's probably one of the best solo writers in thrash metal because mm. mm. his kind of secret weapon is... He has an ultra fast right hand. Like he can down pick at just ludicrous speeds. Yeah, like yeah. probably up there with people like Mustaine for that. But I, I would argue Wright's better sounding solos than Mustaine mm. most of the time. It's, and I think that's the thing that makes Annihilator in particular this album as well really interesting is that they take you know other bands take different influences and bring it in like we've talked about with Voivod and Coroner. But Annihilator take this incredible knowledge of just the guitar as an instrument, both electric and acoustic, and bring that into thrash and knowledge from other genres which otherwise doesn't really exist as much mm. and uses that in this genre which makes it just feel very different and all sorts of different musical techniques are being used an incredible grasp of melody in the solos as well which really helps them like you know solos without melody can work but if all your solos have no melody then at some point it's not going to become as memorable particularly yeah. if they're longer solos oh yeah definitely um i sort of brought it up earlier do you have the? Did you listen to the version of the album with the two demo tracks after I'm in Command? I don't think I did actually. Uh, no. So this is like a really interesting thing. Um, you can hear on the end of the album. Uh, there's like if you get the kind of extended edition, two of Jeff's original demos are just him playing oh, okay. everything. 
The the most interesting is Freed from the Pit, which is the original version of Road for Ruin, mm. Road to Ruin, where he's um Jeff's doing these kind of really harsh, almost like slightly growled vocals, yeah. and it's all singing about kind of like Satan and stuff, <laughs> rather than Road to Ruin that becomes the drink driving yeah, song, yeah. and rather than the super melodic solo, it's got a really fast aggressive, <laughs> and the whole production of the demo is really kind of raw and aggressive. It's like mm. that in itself could have been quite a cool. If he'd followed that style of the whole album, that could have been quite cool, quite a kind of mm. um, proto fresh sounding thing. But instead, he's taking it in this ultra clean direction, and both both yeah. really work. I think that's really interesting to see the sort of like the two different interpretations of the same song. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like I think that pretty much covers it because we don't want to go along about Annihilator for too long. But I have a stupid segment based around an <laughs> Annihilator fact I found out. Annihilator are the probably, and this might have changed in the last couple of years, but probably the metal band with the 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 extreme metal band with the third most albums. <laughs> I don't think anyone in death metal or black metal, yeah. at least any of them, there might be some really odd stuff mm-hmm. I've missed. I've discounted Grind because <laughs> it's not fair when your arms can be fifteen minutes yeah, long. Yeah. Um, and Doom, I think, included that have like that many albums mm. so mm. if you're interested number one the band with the most albums in extreme metal is Overkill with 18 I'm not sure how I feel about that I mean it, <laughs> the, the pun of their name's great yeah. <laughs> um, second to that is a band I've actually never listened to Tankard with 17 okay yeah Tankard are I, I they don't, yeah, I they mean, don't. They don't really excite me. I've got it. There's too many albums. For Seventeen beer themed thrash albums seems yep. pushing yep. it. I was, and, I was getting a bit upset that Aelstorm have got six albums out now, and Tanker I mean, Seventeen's really upsetting. It's quite upsetting. Um, and then Annihilator, not too far behind, with fifteen. And this segment is Phil's listened to every single Annihilator <laughs> album, so you don't have to. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to quickly run through them in order and recommend the good and like. Yeah, talk about the good and the bad. So, first up, we have Alice in Hell, closely followed by Never Neverland. These two are utter thrash classics. Like, if you like thrash, own them. Roadrunner do a great um, bundle where you can get both albums together, like, for the price of one. Mm. Highly worth buying. It's with all the demos and cool stuff. Yeah, uh, Alice in Hell, as we were saying before, way heavier than Never Neverland, like, but they're good counterpoints to each yeah. other. Alice Nell just feel, has a much darker feel to it as well, as well as the production. Like a lot of the songs, there's just less variance in there, and there's more sort of like horror themes and sort of nasty stuff, basically. Yeah. Um, so getting to quickly, like not that quickly actually, on the heels of Never Neverland, 1993, we see Set the World on Fire, which kind of was billed as the follow-up, but it's really disappointing. Like, the heaviness of Never Neverland, which was an admittedly less heavy album, is mm. just gone. And it, I, title track's alright, but for the most part, this is a really disappointing album. Mm. More or less the same lineup, I think it's the same vocalist. Uh, follow up to that, the vocalist leaves, and we get King of the Kill, which is the first Jeff doing nearly all of it album. Mm. He's not playing the drums on this one, but it's the first time Jeff steps up and does vocals for the band. And... Jeff's vocals aren't great. This is a this is a running theme. Jeff's vocals just let stuff down when we get to it. So King of the Kill, again, title track is a really good song. Can't too hard yeah, recommend I mean, it. I mean, I, I've dipped in and out of Annihilator sort of over their career. Mm. The first two albums, fantastic, and then dipped in and out again. Um, and I do remember the point where it sort of switches to Jeff's vocals. And like, 
Like props to the guy, he writes some incredible songs, but it just doesn't quite work. Because this is the other thing should be mentioned. His playing keeps getting better through all of these. Mm. Like, mm. It, it won't be said the whole time, but yes, the solos are amazing the whole way through <laughs> this. Um, yeah, following up to King of the Kill, we get Refresh of the Demon, which is basically like it is doing the same album again. It, it, but it's a bit more aggressive, a bit more heavy, got some really good stuff on it. Um, two things to let down. It's where we first start seeing a load of ballads coming in, which is a theme through Annihilator, and I do not get Annihilator ballads. <laughs> there might be people out there that love them, but they... Oh my god, they're saccharine. I mean, there, there are some thrash bands which I think do ballads really well. Testament leaps to mind immediately, who have some actually great ballads, but most of the time I don't really think it's a song style that fits thrash. No, I, but I think this is very much Jeff's argument with Annihilator is... They're not a thrash band, like yeah, yeah, they, he, so. he tends to like to keep all the other influences at the fore. So maybe they're just for people who aren't me. <laughs> and the other problem is the cover is horrible. <laughs> it, it is so ugly. Yeah. Um, but yes, some great like tracks: "Refresher Demon," "Pastor of Disaster," "Hunger," all really worth mm. listening to. Now, 1997 comes "Remains," which is the first Jeff doing everything album, and this. Well, at least I thought when listening for an order is the real low point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's program drums, but also it's 1997. New metals come in, and Jeff's clearly been listening to it. It starts with a track "Murder," which is great. Murder. Jeff does these kind of weird, like whisper vocals, which are actually kind of cool, mm-hmm. and it's got a really catchy chorus. It all sounds like a demo because of the program drums and mm-hmm. slightly crappy mm-hmm. quality uh, guitar. But then the follow-up track. Um, you can kind of tell where this is going because the song is called Sexecution <laughs> and it tends towards like really bad Rob Zombie ripoffs oh, for most right. of the rest of the album. <laughs> it, like, listen to Murder, skip the rest. It, it, it is <laughs> unfortunate this one just doesn't quite work. But 1999, clearly Jeff's had some feedback and we get Criteria for a Black Widow where. He tries to recapture the magic of the first two albums and properly, like, he's doing this on purpose. He's trying, he's definitely trying to pull back old fans. Mm-hmm. Like, the cover looks like a cover from the, uh, like, it's got a reference to the the Allison character. Um, the, the songs are back to being super fast and technical. The picking speed on some of these is mind-blowing, really flashy. Unfortunately, the songs aren't quite good enough. Like, they're, mm-hmm. they're good, but they're not... Um, uh, they're not as good as they could be. And the songs I recommend on this show how much he's leaning back to the old stuff with Back to the Palace um, and <laughs> Schizos Are Never Alone Part 3, a follow-up to <laughs> Schizos Are Never Alone Part 1 and 2 from yeah, the first album. Yeah. Also, Punctured is really catchy. Mm. Now, 2001, we get to my recommendation of this is the third Annihilation album you buy, Carnival Diabolus. Um, we take, actually, a step away from Fresh more towards New Wave of British Heavy Metal um, first appearance of Joe Camo on vocals, and he's probably the best Annihilator vocalist. I'm I'm willing to argue about that, but yeah. And we get just loads of great straight-up hard rock songs, a mm-hmm. um, couple of more thrashy numbers, like Epic of War is a proper new wave of British heavy metal song, which despite slightly silly lyrics, is fucking brilliant. Like, yeah, you get stuff like that with Man of War. Silly lyrics can be made up for a great song. yeah. Beyond that, um, Shallow Grave and The Rush, are the great like kind of classic rock songs which you'll probably hear in their live set quite a lot. And if you stay around right for the end of the album, you hear the follow-up to Craft Dinner of Jeff's <laughs> tribute to his favourite dish, 
chicken and corn. <laughs> and this song is so stupid, Joe refused to record vocals on it, so Jeff's back for the end of the album. Um, the follow-up to that, again, is quite a cool album. comes a year later, Waking the Fury. And my main review of Waking the Fury is, turn the fucking distortion off. <laughs> this entire album has distortion on everything. Oh. <laughs> like, the drums are distorted. The vocals oh. are distorted. Like, if it wasn't no. for that, this might be one of the best. It's super fast, super flashy throughout. Tracks like Ultra Motion, Blackest Day, Torn are so fucking mm. heavy. And when you hear them live, these guys really work. Um, like this, this is another high point. It's just a weird production yeah, choice. Yeah. Then we get into like the kind of near the last era of the band we see, like obviously up to now. Uh, Dave Padden joins on vocals, and Dave is going to be the next... The closest thing we get to a permanent member mm. with um, with Annihilator, this guy's in the band for the next four albums, which I think is more than anyone else has managed. Because yeah, yeah. at this point, I'm pretty sure being an Annihilator is Canadian National Service. <laughs> Unfortunately, Dave Padden's first uh, album, and this is actually, I reckon, the low point of Annihilator, mm. is all for you. This is, rather than taking the kind of more new metal style... This is them embracing the rise of metalcore. It's about 2004 oh, right. this comes out. Yeah. And my God, the ballads are there and full and they are upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Worst of all, Mike Mangini of Dream Theater is the drummer on this oh, album. <laughs> oh, right. Um, <laughs> my note here is, for songs to recommend, possibly Absolute Rage, but honestly skip this one. <laughs> the follow-up, 2005 Schizo Deluxe, though, actually really good like if you're going to buy like four Annihilator albums maybe this Overwaken the Fury mm. more technical again there's a lot of really clever song structures there's a bass solo in one of the songs it's, <laughs> it's at, at, like um, that's the track Drive genuinely really good um, the only downside to this album is I think Dave's vocals are gonna you're gonna like or you're, or you're gonna hate. They are quite metalcore influenced. They mm. they're often you know they have like they they have that weird studio effect on them to make them sound kind of super clean and yeah, yeah. it's like it's not auto tuned but it almost sounds like it. Um, in the background, Jeff starts doing some quite cool growls every so often, which adds to sound quite a lot. But yeah, this album, especially the first five tracks, highly recommend. All right, we're almost there. Three more, <laughs> four more. Sorry. <laughs> Next, we get Metal, which is guitar solos of the album. Uh, Jeff gets on something like 20 guest musicians to this album, including uh, superfan Alexi Leo, Mm. uh, William Adler, Jeff Loomis, Mike Amott, uh, Angela Gosso. That's a a crazy list of musicians already, yeah. Yeah, it's just just all about solos. If Mm. you love solos... (laughs) It's great, but the riffs aren't that good. The lyrics aren't that good. Like, it's not a terrible album, but it's just a bit too. Mm. It's a bit of a self-indulgent fun album. It doesn't feel. But then again, I guess the band's got fifteen albums they can do once. A bit silly in the middle. Um, highlight of it: downright dominate with Alexi Leo. It's actually a very good song. Uh, Follow up to that: self two thousand ten self-titled. Um, very similar to Schizo. Starts off brilliantly strong. And sort of dips towards the end. Like the first three tracks, especially, absolutely brilliant. Um, 
the trend, especially uh, rants about posers, is quite I was, fun. I was, yeah, I was going to say because one of the ones I remember dipping back into quite clearly was the one which starts with the trend, which is this one, Annihilator. Yeah, and I remember like the leads that begin this are incredible. Like they're so so catchy, so melodic, and then it goes into this really fast downpicked riff, and then it has these few songs which are just like really great, like really good sort of technical thrash. And yeah, then I sort of can't remember anything beyond that. Yeah, around track five, it starts to tend off. But like again, if you really like Annihilator's style, mm. this one's great. And uh, su- such a great opening. Like I, mm. I bought this album on the strength of that opening alone. I was like, that is so good. Even if the rest of it's not that great, that opening's worth it. I think yeah, because I think the main point I'm getting at here is if you like Fresh, you can essentially make a brilliant playlist of Annihilator. Mm. They're one mm. of those bands, much like Hypocrisy, that if you just pick out the best moments. They have some incredible bits. Yeah, yeah. Just not too many absolutely killer albums. And when you have, what, 15 albums, mm. that's, that's, that's pretty tough. Yeah, and unfortunately 2013's The Feast, the final Dave Padden album, it's just slightly watered down Annihilator, like the previous album. It And what really doesn't help this out, Jeff was asked if he'd like to do an album re-recording all the, the classic early stuff with a new lineup. And he said he'd never do it, he'd just release it as, like, say, and it's released with this as a bonus disc, them doing tracks like Fun Palace, Alice mm. in Hell, but with Dave Padden on vocals. And what happens with this is, they're not as good as the original songs, obviously these re-record albums never really are, but it shows how much better some of the old riffs are than the newer riffs on Feast, <laughs> if you listen to them back to back, yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> so there's some really good tracks, like No Way Out and Demon Code are both really good tracks, and then finally we get to 2015, Suicide Society, gone back to being Jeff's Beast again, he's back on vocals. But unfortunately, rather than going for that kind of growled style he was in the background of a lot of the early, the, the last five albums, he's going back to going really clean vocals, and he just can't pull it off. Mm. So again, like I'd say Suicide Society's not really where to go. With, with Annihilator, Highly Advised, first two albums, Fresh is pretty cool, um... Carnival Diabolus and Schizo Deluxe all really worth listening to. Waking the Fury is great as well. And actually, uh, if you're into them, the double live album, Double Live Annihilation from 2003, is excellent. Possibly the best example of mm. like Annihilator in their element. They're a very good live band. They play tight as hell. The, and it's just a good selection of their early career. And it makes tracks from albums like Refresh Your Demons and Remain actually sound amazing tracks that yeah, were yeah. a bit weak on the album mainly because Joe's back on vocals for that one or I guess you know tracks where you're talking about with the production as well when you hear them live like you actually hear them as their sort of sound with real instruments as well and that yeah yeah that's got to sound great yeah and so basically great stuff in Annihilator if you and now we've got to sell you on them uh, finally get back to where we were before <laughs> from Never Neverland we're going to play um, track 6 Imperiled Eyes probably the most progressive of the mm. album
after uh, 25 minutes of Annihilator chat, um, I'm going to bore you even more with talk of one of my favourite guitarists, John Cobbett. The final album we're covering today, possibly the biggest departure from Thrash, but a couple of tracks in this are thrashy enough, I feel it can be thrown in here. Mm. This is the uh, Profound Law supergroup, Vol, um, and we're going to cover their 2013 album, Vol. Now, I don't know if that's how you're meant to pronounce the name, it's got a double M like over the O. But I don't know how you meant to yeah, do that. No, I'm not sure how that's meant to be said. But yeah, um, this is this is a super group of members of, well, like what's the list? Like Yob, Hammer's Misfortune, Ludicra, like Agalock. Yeah, yeah. So um, so many great bands, and there's quite a lot of overlap in who's mm. in what. Well, it's, it's a super group, so all of the bands that they come from um, come from Profound Law. So you mm. were saying when this album was released, like Profound Law did quite a big thing about it, showing that they have all these fantastic musicians who've done this thing together. Yeah. Um, so, we have Aesop Decker on drums, who seems to be an underrated guy in the mm. metal realm. Like, amazing drummer and amazing metal enthusiast in millions of bands, including mm. Ludicra, Agalock, uh, Extremity, Wormoroboros, like, yeah, loads of stuff. Yeah, and, and he's, like, such a versatile drummer as well, Sorry. having been in all of these different styles. He has a sort of a big foot in the hardcore scene, as well as having done this sort of, like... Um, atmospheric-y, black metal-y, folky type stuff with Agalock and then extreme music with other bands. Like, he's really, really versatile and always brings his all and really makes, particularly when he joined Agalock, like, he just made, put their sound to the nth level. Like, he made it so much better and he really emphasizes whatever band he's in. So he's a really interesting guy um, and, you know, like, talks about a lot of interesting metal. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, the the project seems to be mainly the beast uh, based on the ideas of John Cobbett. Like, mm. John Cobbett, yeah, we've spoken about before in our end of the year episode, he's the main man behind, behind Hammers of Misfortune. It's also in Ludicra, was in um, the Lord Wig Slough Feg for a while. Sort of very, like, well, like, well-renowned career of being in bands that are really cool but never really get that yeah, big. Yeah, Other than he was very briefly in Guar. <laughs> um, and again he's he's a really interesting guitarist particularly on this album because this album straddles weird lines between genres but it's very hard to define really what exactly it is it's definitely got influences from thrash and things like hardcore which is really why we've included it on this list because it takes some of those influences and then puts them into something a bit more modern but there's a lot of sort of like progressive metal influences on this alongside what to me sound like a lot of black metal influences and even some from death metal as well. Like, it, this album sort of goes all over the place. I would say new wave of British heavy metal as well. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, the guitaring goes through everything. And it's not, like, I say the guitaring because, like, this this album is mainly a foil for the guitar and vocals um, mm -hmm. of uh, Mike Scheide. Uh, Shade, shade, <laughs> yeah. The vocalist of Yob, like, yeah, who who has an amazing and very unique voice. Like, mm. this sort of goes from these kind of very off kilter, high clean vocals into some quite kind of more low guttural growls. Yeah, like at some points it sort of sounds like an almost Tom Warrior satyr type thing, mm. and then at other times it's just entirely its own beast, which is very hard to classify. And I think for him as well, coming from. Job, I think, from some of his experience, he is excellent at knowing exactly when and where to place vocals uh, and to give a huge amount of breathing room to the instrumentals, particularly the guitar tracks on this, but then to come in at exactly the right time to keep your interest in the song, to further develop these sort of musical ideas that are there. And I think, you know, a lot of Doom bands, because there will be long sections or drone bands or whatever where there's not much going on, tend to get very good at this technique. Yeah, yeah, and he is just on vocals this album, whereas he plays guitar, and I think... Mm. 
writes a huge amount for Yob. Um, the the final member of the band is John Cobbett's wife, uh, Sigrid, who is vocalist and Hammond organ player for Hammers and Misfortune, um, and bass player on this album, proving themselves a massively talented multi-instrumentalist. <laughs> because the, the thing with this album is... I think a lot of it was designed to be played live. And we so we have a thing we had earlier with Coroner where you've just got one guitar a lot of the time and the bass and drums are having to make up a lot of the rest of the sound. And, my God, they're fast. Like, they're not massively technical, but they're fast. Like, yeah, yeah. Aesop Drecker's drumming, it, it's just the main thing about it. It's just, it's quick. It's really... Yeah, yeah. And again, in this album, like he has to switch it up so much because there'll be points where he has to be doing these furious blast beats to keep up with his guitar. And then he'll have to sort of drop into something much smoother or something that's like a bit groovy or something that's kind of catchy or something else weird. So not only from the songwriting perspective, but from the playing perspective, particularly for a drummer trying to hold all of this like sort of marginal chaos together, it takes a hell of a lot to be able to switch smoothly between these sort of different passages of the songs. Yeah, yeah. So the, the kind of style on this album, like... It's very hard to classify, but it's a lot of very fast, very complex riffing where the guitar will vary constantly over a more together rhythm section. Mm. Um, quickly tending into some very quick, slightly off-kilter, but not too weird melodic moments, and then often just diving straight back into extremely heavy. Mm. It's very groove-based. There's a lot of big, memorable choruses in yeah. this. Um and there's a lot of changes in the atmosphere throughout. Because the album is a concept album as well. Again, like most John Collett concept albums, I haven't quite worked out what it's about, <laughs> but I'm sure it's cool. Yeah, it seems yeah. to be something like a religious cult uh, taking over the planet and then a resistance force arising against mm. them, possibly ending the world in the process. Yeah, I, think, I think I remember reading something about this, yeah. It, that, that's kind of the feeling I get, but... The, the lyrics are so open for interpretation. Mm. They work very well on that level. And as, as we say, there's a huge range of sort of influences within this that make it hard to categorise. There'll be these, these sort of atmospheric, like, tremolo-picked riffs which, like, feel very black metal, but it doesn't have the black metal production. And then mm. it will switch. It doesn't have black metal... It doesn't really have black metal vocals either. And then it will switch into these bits which sort of, like, have this sort of fast palm-muted feel, mm. like a thrash song, which is, like, I think why we included it in this, because there's these bits of it where you're like... That really feels like it's come out of thrash and has been sort of mutated and changed with all these sort of different and more modern influences put on it. But there's definitely that feel there, and particularly because you've got Aesop Decker, who's played a lot of um, you know hardcore and played in pretty much every genre you can name. Those bits feel really sort of real. Mm. Like, they feel as if it's not just something that's thrown in there. It's something that all these people have deliberately put in there and can play very well. Yeah, and like it, what's really interesting with this is this does seem to be a more thrashy, hardcore-rooted album. But everyone on it is playing outside their comfort zone, but mm. seemingly unfazed. Like, Sir Hammer's Misfortune are kind of a progressive, like a kind of progressive rock slash progressive metal band. Yeah, uh, Ludicra, There are other projects like kind of mellow black metal. Um, obviously, the guy like Yob are a sludge doom band. Yeah, yeah like, incredibly it, slow. This doesn't sound like any of their other bands, but then you can see elements of all of them in there. Mm, this is mm. the antithesis of a perfect supergroup where everyone's bringing their their own sound to it, and the album is greater than the sum of the parts. It's not like, despite John Glady having the main handle on mm. writing it, Mike does so much with the vocals, like. Aesop really gets his place with the drumming and Sigrid can really be heard throughout mm. the, 
the uh, the album is great. Like, yeah, it really forms its own beast out of all these influences, which is that thing that you really hope for with any band where you bring together diverse musical influences. That there's that they don't sort of feel too juxtaposed against each other. They sort of mesh into their own identity, and it really does with Vol. Like, I mean, there's nothing that sounds like them, and you can pick out parts of the bands that are in there, but you couldn't say, "Oh, this is this is what Vol is." Mm. There's other really interesting choices throughout. Like most of the songs on the album have a solo, but the, rather than going for quite melodic solos, the solos just are just strange. The one at the end of Illuminate, <laughs> it just the lead just disappears off a cliff of like <laughs> just John's logic of what he's playing makes no sense, but it sounds cool. It brings mm. the it brings the song to a really interesting close, but it's like he's just throwing random notes at the wall by yeah, the end yeah. of it. Um, a rising has one of the strangest ends going where it just it sort of builds up and up while get like the core pattern builds up while the riff gets slower <laughs> until it eventually just falls out in a wall of fuzz yeah like, yeah it's it's really interesting how like there's been all these odd musical decisions made which have then been crafted into a song which entirely works um and like I don't really think there's anything on this album that I'd cut no I, um, I, I, I like to oversell it massively, my girlfriend rates this as the most perfect album made in that <laughs> there is nothing wrong with it. It's com- mm. There is no flaw. The production is exactly what it should be. It's yeah. not too clean. It's still a bit fuzzy, which gives it a bit of brutality that it really wants. Yeah. Like Songs like Insane With Faith are meant to bash you around the head. But then it can come into more like parts at like the middle of the final track, Song Set To Await Forever, works perfectly where you drop out into a very mellow guitar piece and Mike singing these super clean vocals like yeah and a lot of his vocals as well like they're they're odd and unsettling in a way like there's something I mean and I'd struggle to describe his clean vocals but something almost childlike about them mm. um, which just gives it this really interesting atmosphere it, 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 you know you have these sort of black metal style riffs which this is over the top of and then you have completely different like riffs from every drummer imaginable which it's over the top of and it it just makes it feel very different and very unique. Um, and the songwriting really supports that, as we were talking about with songs like Arising, where it just sort of like builds up towards this end in a way that you don't really expect it to. It just feels like this incredibly unique product, which no other band has really got anywhere near. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I don't want to go on about this too much because it is just an album I really love and maybe other people wouldn't sit in the same way, but it just sits in this nice, unique area, which is why we felt it would be good for the Progressive Thrash one. Mm. Because we can find a bloody episode to put it in. Like, yeah, you, it, you can't really put it with other black metal albums. It doesn't really fit with that. It doesn't really fit with a hardcore episode. Yeah. It doesn't even fit with the follow-up. Like, So this is the first <laughs> Vol album, and the follow-up album, Deeper Than The Sky, is a completely different style mm. altogether. Mm. It's far more kind of far more leaning towards classic rock kind of ideas, but then with some really strange stuff going on in it. Both are really worth checking out, but I do think the self-title is the real highlight of their career. Yeah, it's a real testament to like new musical ideas and taking old inspirations from different genres, putting them together, and like through deft songwriting actually producing something which stands by itself as something that's like nothing else that's ever been done, really. Yeah, and still has catchy choruses. Like, mm. you... Songs like Insane With Faith and Plastic Shaman, you yeah, get yeah. the chorus stuck in your head <laughs> so often. 
Yeah. And then it's a, but then, you know, we were talking the same thing with Coroner, and this is such an odd counterpoint to Coroner. Like, they sound <laughs> yeah. so, so different, and yet the same influences are there within both of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I think definitely. Also, you had an interesting point about Aesop Decker we should bring up before we leave. Oh, yeah, so um, at work today, I was um, browsing Twitter, and I think I found Aesop Decker does a podcast called um, Heavy Metal Dads, uh, or at least he was on a podcast called Heavy Metal Dads, because... Um, the bass player and vocalist of Giant Squid, who is now in Corrado with Aesop Decker and the other guys from Agalock, um, were guested on it. So um, definitely look that up. I'm looking forward to looking it up. Yeah, yeah, we haven't actually heard it yet. <laughs> um, so we're going to play from this album, Plastic Shaman, just because it's a good introduction to that kind of sound. It's a great song title as well. But yes, hang around after this one, because we're not going to do another proper set, but we've got the second edition of... Um, uh, Phil's, Phil's nepotism, nepotism corner. corner. <laughs> yeah, I almost forgot the name of it there. <laughs>
So the band we're covering in uh, Phil's Nepotism Corner is a band we've seen live loads of times. We know their vocalist quite well. Mm. This is... Um, and yeah, if you're a local to London, you might have come across them already. <laughs> this is uh, the band Bang Over. They're thrash. They're definitely not progressive thrash. Not a problem here, though. Like, So... The um, the song we're going to play for you is "Floss or Die" off of off of their forthcoming uh, EP "Shovel Butcher." And the important thing is that Bangover attacking the issues that no one else in the metal world is talking about, and that is dental hygiene. Um, and like we 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 just went away and listened to this just before this, and um, we've got the lyrics up on their Bandcamp as well. They're genuinely great. Like it has that thing that you find in some thrash metal songs of managing to make it both funny and like just a really good song alongside it without sacrificing either for the other. Um, like go and listen to this. Also read the lyrics because it, it's entertaining enough just reading them. Yeah, yeah. This is very Exodus and Slayer influenced thrash. Yeah. If you like that kind of. But, like, with decent production, like, mm. all the playing's fucking excellent. The solos are quite melodic. They don't descend into whammy bar nonsense, which is really nice. Yeah. The riffs are fucking catchy. Yeah, it's, uh, the riffs have got this great groove to them, really reminded me of Exodus as well. And, like, any thrash song that reminds me of Exodus, gotta be good. Yeah, and if you're from the UK, these guys are so worth checking out live because. Yeah. They're, they're, they are great fun. Um, the, the Phil, stupid... Phil nearly killed a small child when he saw them once, but. Uh, I think it was like yeah. 17 here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, like, really decent live act, and this is not as silly as they get. Which <laughs> They'll be playing Bloodstock, and regulars at Bloodstock Festival might know them. Yeah. Like, their guitarist is famously the guy who's just dressed as a toothpaste yeah. during um, the Cannibal Corpse mosh pit. Yeah, and if you do go to see them, be sure to get involved in the Floss Pit, which is sure to sort of generate from this track when it's played live. You'll have a great time. And we should mention as well, the this single, if you like it, is... Like for up for pay what you want on Bandcamp. So yeah. if you you know if you really enjoy it, chuck them a quid or so, or fifty p or whatever, or, or pay it. nothing and uh... <laughs> well, yeah, just enjoy it. You know, pay nothing then pay to see them live. <laughs> <laughs> well, buy a t shirt. I've I've got one, but um, unfortunately it has the uh, words "gang rape" written on the back of it, so I can't really wear it anywhere else other than a metal show. So it's still a really cool t shirt. Yeah, this is fossil night. <laughs> Bitch, if that you 
Let's 